Episode 68, India's Forgotten Rocketeer. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit amateur astronomy podcast produced by me, Gurubir Singh, an amateur astronomer based in the UK. For more information, see the About and FAQ pages at www.astrotalkuk.org. On 25th of May 2012, the privately funded company SpaceX used a rocket to transport supplies from the surface of the Earth to the International Space Station 400 kilometers above. Although completely incomparable in scope, the first ever delivery of supplies using rocket power took place 77 years earlier in India. The delivery of first aid materials and even the transport of living beings entirely by rocket power was demonstrated by practical experiment in 1935. Now almost forgotten, these experiments were conducted by a Calcutta-based Anglo-Indian called Stephen Hector Taylor Smith, usually abbreviated to Stephen H. Smith. Working mostly unfunded and primarily alone, Smith launched almost 300 rockets between 1934 and 1945. At 1535 on April the 10th, 1935, Smith used a rocket to deliver a parcel containing 12 items, which included a packet of tea, sugar, spoon, toothbrush and cigarettes about a kilometre across a river. In the aftermath of a devastating earthquake, he illustrated the advantages of rocket-powered transport to cover difficult terrain quickly. On the 6th of June 1935, he successfully launched a small consignment of first-aid materials consisting of rolls of bandages, lint, iodine and aspirin over the river Rupnarayan in West Bengal. Smith's 65th rocket launch, conducted on the morning of the 29th of June 1935, was unique in its cargo and ambition. He demonstrated that living beings, and not just inanimate objects, could be transported by rockets. In a record-making flight, rocket power was used to transport a hen and a cock about a kilometre across the river. Smith had added stabilising fins, cut almond-shaped holes for ventilation, and built shock-absorbing properties into the rocket design. The rocket did not employ a parachute. The soft and sandy bank was critical, and even to Smith's surprise, the hen and cock survived. Both flourished for at least 18 months in a private zoo in Calcutta. During the early 20th century, the story of rocket development is told through the cumulative contribution of iconic names such as Hermann Oberth, Werner von Braun, Sergei Korolev, and Robert Goddard. Smith's contribution cannot be compared to their work, but his work was not insignificant and has been mostly lost to history in India and beyond. Smith was not a trained scientist or an engineer. Eventually, he tested different types of rocket fuel, fins for attitude control, and even designed a rocket to carry a camera to capture aerial images. Initially, he was not doing much more than lighting the blue touch paper 
of a traditional firework and then standing back. But he was a man of vision and conducted numerous practical experiments to understand and promulgate the potential of rocket power as a mechanism for transport. Smith was born in 1891 in Shillong, Assam. He was an Anglo-Indian, a group of people with British lineage and officially recognised in the Indian constitution. His father, William Bat Smith, was also born in Assam. He attended St. Patrick's Boys' School in Asansol in West Bengal, established originally by the Christian Brothers from Southern Ireland. It was a school for Anglo-Indian boys he joined in 1903, the same year that the Wright brothers successfully demonstrated flight in an aeroplane. The first aeroplane to fly in India did so relatively close to Asansol. On January 6, 1911, during Smith's final year at school, more than 750,000 people gathered at the Calcutta Racecourse to witness first-hand the magic of man-made flying machines. Smith must have known about the event. He was probably amongst the huge crowd. In the following month, on the 18th of February 1911, with a formal sanction from the Indian Postal Service, the world's first official airmail consisting of about 6,000 cards and letters was flown from Allahabad to the town of Naini, 10 kilometers away. It is possible that this experience ignited an interest in aviation, airmail and eventually rockets that stayed with him for the rest of his life. The First World War had accelerated the development of aviation in the same way that the Second World War had done for rocketry. In the early 1920s, India saw the introduction of aerial transport of cargo, regular airmail, scheduled passenger flights. Smith took an interest in tracking and recording developments in airmail, just as steam engine locomotives had attracted enthusiasts in the past, and a spaceflight does today. A global revolution was taking place in aerial transport just when Smith was starting out on his adult life. He had already been involved in pigeon mail when the potential for airmail arrived. In the early 1930s, it was unclear then what form of transport would triumph, airships, aeroplanes or rockets. The first airmail service from Britain to India was conducted by Imperial Airways. The flight left Croydon Airport on 30th of March 1929, arriving in Karachi on the 6th of April. On the return flight, on the following day, Smith sent a letter to the King at Buckingham Palace in London. The King's private secretary responded on the 19th of April on behalf of the King. To thank Mr Stephen H Smith for the letter which he sent to His Majesty, by the first flight from India to Great Britain. Philately was Smith's primary preoccupation throughout his adult life. During the 1920s, he founded the Calcutta Philatelic Club, the Aerophilatelic Club of India, which changed its name to the Indian Airmail Society on the 19th of January 1930. Almost all of his rocket launches contained signed souvenir covers 
and specially designed rocket mail stamps. These flown covers were highly sought after by collectors then and are still today. Interestingly, it is through these covers that much of his work can be traced today. In addition to the regular newsletters for the Indian Airmail Society, Smith wrote Indian Airways, a work in three volumes detailing the first and special flights within and through India up to March 1930. 1927, he authored a small book, The World Flyers Danger Zone, covering the hazards of mail flights southeast from Calcutta across the Bay of Bengal to Burma and Thailand. He dedicated the book and its proceeds to the widow of Arthur B. Elliot, who was killed on July the 4th, 1926. Smith had met Elliot personally in 1925. By early 1930s, rocket mail experiments were being conducted in America, Europe and Australia. Smith was the only one launching rockets in India. He experimented with rocket launches from ship to shore, shore to ship, at night time, across rough terrain, across rough terrain and across rivers. Smith recorded information about his flights, including sketches in his diary, and took many pictures. The rockets were launched at a variety of angles, 30, 45, even 80 degrees. He recorded details of the wind speed and direction and distance the rockets covered for almost every launch. He does not appear to have used any instruments to measure altitude, distance or speed, so the measurements are likely to have been qualitative. His largest rocket weighed about 7 kilograms, with a total length of about 2 meters. Typically, his rockets could carry a payload of about half a kilogram. His largest rockets could carry twice that. In February 1936, Smith joined the British Interplanetary Society that had been founded in Liverpool three years earlier. He was probably the BIS's first member from India. The BIS was one of many societies around the world established to promote the development of rocket technology and its application for space travel. Through the BIS's bulletin and journal, which reflected the contribution of its international membership, Smith would have been aware of the technological developments in rocketry worldwide, but there's no evidence of how much of what he learned he put into practice in his own experiments. After the start of the Second World War, Smith reduced the details he recorded and published on his rocket experiments. In 1940, he attempted two rocket launches carrying brownie cameras with an intention to take aerial pictures. Neither succeeded. By December 1944, still based in Calcutta, Smith was experimenting with compressed air and compressed gas instead of traditional solid fuel as a means of rocket propulsion. Despite his pioneering work with rockets, he probably did not accomplish his ambitions. He visited the Kingdom of Sikkim twice in 1935 to conduct his rocket experiments. On his second time, he took his wife and his son with him. The King of Sikkim not only supported his work, but actively participated in his experiments by personally 
igniting some of the rockets. On April the 11th, 1935, following a successful firing of his rocket number 54, a certificate was awarded to him in the presence of the king, certifying the utility of the rocket as a means of transport during floods and landslips. This formal recognition is the nearest he got to achieving his ambition. Smith wanted to realize the potential of rocket power for transport for mail and materials, just as he was witnessing aeroplanes doing so in his time. His limited skills and resources prevented him from making significant advances. In 1992, a year after the centenary of his birth, the Indian government celebrated his achievement by issuing a stamp and first day cover dedicated to him and his work. Not much is known of his personal life. After leaving school, Smith worked briefly at the Customs Department in Calcutta before joining the Calcutta Police Force as a round sergeant on the 18th of March 1913 on a salary of 100 rupees per month. Whilst with the police, he successfully completed his training as a dentist. His time with the Calcutta police was otherwise uneventful and he resigned on the 4th of December 1914. It was as a dentist that he served in the First World War, after which he continued in this profession with a private dental practice based at his home address on 25A Elliott Road in Calcutta. He married Faye Harcourt in 1918, most probably another Anglo-Indian that he had known at least since 1913. They had one son, Hector, who did not share his father's interests. Smith died in 1951 and his wife in 1985 and both are buried in Calcutta. His son Hector married and had a son whose name is not known and a daughter Gloria. The son grew up with learning disabilities and was sent to an institution. Hector, with his wife and daughter Gloria, emigrated to Britain, where Hector, soon after arrival, died. Eventually, Gloria too got married and had a daughter called Lucy. As Smith's only living descendant, Lucy may be living somewhere in Britain today. The following clip is an interview with Melvin Brown, an Anglo-Indian who writes on Anglo-Indian topics. He lives on Elliott Road in Calcutta, a short walking distance from where Smith lived. He never met Stephen Smith, but near the end of this short interview, he recalls his meeting with Smith's son, Hector. To put it in a nutshell, I was born in Pune, mm -hmm. uh, that's in the state of Maharashtra, and uh, I was very young, I was brought to Calcutta when I was three, as an orphan, and uh, grew up here, did all my studies here, I went to St. Anthony's school, I went to St. Joseph's Bobizar mm -hmm. uh, school, and uh, eventually I went to St. Xavier's. Mm -hmm. And there at St. Xavier's, I became a librarian. Mm -hmm. So, just define for us, what is uh, an Anglo-Indian in India these days? Well, uh, an Anglo-Indian, according to the Constitution, is uh, a person whose uh, father, 
either European, British, you know, uh, had an Indian uh, woman, uh, and then uh, of course the offspring is an Anglo-Indian, European, because when I went to Europe and went to Belgium, I was sitting in a pub when uh, the fellow told me, ah, you're an Indian. <coughs> I said, yes, by nationality I'm an Indian, but by community I'm an Anglo-Indian. So he said, Anglo-Indian, I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> and so the book, the outcome of the book. Right. Uh, now, Anglo-Indians uh, was a strategy, in fact, uh, maybe a, a formal uh, policy by, introduced by the East India Company. That's right. Because they asked the then British single men who came to work here um, to take up relationships with Indian women. To marry Indian women, and they funded them for that yeah. <laughs> marriage. Because yeah, the, they, when you they, say funded, you mean when they had children, they would be... Uh, no, no, even for the marriage. Oh, I see. Yeah, you get married and we pay all the expenses for your marriage. Really? Yeah. So And uh, they encouraged the uh, young Tommies, mm -hmm. they were Tommy soldiers, you know. Mm -hmm. Many of them were not very educated, you know, dropouts from schools and all in London and England. And... Uh, when they came here, they married the fisherwomen if they were there in Kerala and the mm. south and all that, you know. Mm. And so as well as uh, marriage, they also, I understand, paid for every child that they Every child, up. that's right. They got an allowance. And do you know if the equivalent policies existed within the French and Dutch and Portuguese uh, systems? Uh, no, no. Just the British? No, just the British. Because uh, the British... Uh, basically, you know, are uh, people who are very uh, shrewd, you know. They always uh, don't only look at the present, they look a hundred years ahead, right. <laughs> you see. So they had anticipated that if uh, children were born out of British stock, uh, they would be of great help to the uh, spreading of uh, the British values. British values, yeah. yeah. And uh, they were successful to a great extent, you know, because the Anglo-Indian knew his uh, Indians and their languages and their culture through the mother uh, very well. He could uh, mingle and make communication with the Indians, you see? I never thought of that. So it was a, a policy designed to secure the British position in India okay. through this, uh, this mechanism. So I want to get a feel from your personal memories of what Calcutta was like when you were a young boy growing up here. Oh, Calcutta was very, very flexible. It was very nice and comfortable. And uh, in the passage of growing up, like when I was eight, nine, of course, I was in the boarding school. But uh, life there was so very different from uh, what it is today that I've uh, visited places. And we would go for picnics and outings, you know. And then uh, when I came into the city as a more, uh, as a young man, uh, when I came into the city, and uh, did my studies and all. I found Calcutta to be uh, a very, very nice place, climatically, uh, and also very hospitable. The people were very nice, and uh, yeah, you could move around uh, freely and be happy. And then again, as I kept growing up uh, in my 20s, uh, my late, say, 25, 26, uh, Sunday entertainment uh, became the focus of everyone's life, oh, I, I, I observed. Right. Yeah. 
and uh, Park Street became the center of the hub, you know. And everyone in Calcutta would talk about, oh, you know, there are these little uh, nightclubs and, right. you know, singers and Anglo-Indian right. drummers and <clears throat> things like that. And uh, I found it very interesting because you could at that time travel around uh, the city to any part of the city at any part of the night right. and you were safe and you were comfortable, mm -hmm. you know, whether you were single or whether you went in groups or, uh, you know, with friends. Right. So. Uh, all that in the past, uh, I consider today to have been the truly golden uh, period of time in Bengal's history. So when you talk about entertainment, you're talking about uh, nightclubs, dance halls, theatre and cinema theater as well? Theatre and cinema as well. Right. Yeah, theatre and cinema as well. For example, there was this famous, uh, the new empire which still exists, uh -huh. but uh, <laughs> It's existing in a different uh, way, but the New Empire Theatre uh, showed uh, movies, plays also. They removed the screen and showed plays. And there was this young man called Casey Sin. He created uh, a thing called Bandwagon, you know, a musical show which would take place every Sunday on the stage. And uh, he encouraged. Uh, a lot of Anglo-Indian talent, you know, uh, men and women, boys and girls who loved music, you know, uh, he gave them a chance to come and show your music, right. let us hear your voice, you know, and I was one of them. Right. I used to do slapstick comedy. You did? I wow. Did. This, as I say, there's so much from how you to learn. <laughs> yeah. On the, on the new fire stage, I did slapstick comedy and then I was known as Mel Brown, you know, because I had a sort of a wig right. with a big, long, uh, you know, tail, a ponytail. What does foo refer to? Chinese, F-O-O, -O. so it was an in inverted commas, right. Mel for Melvin, mm -hmm. Mel Fu Brown, that was my stage name for slapstick comedy. I come from Hong Kong, born in Saigon, making no difference, born in Hong Kong, born in Saigon, very big matter B, I born. So that was one of the jokes. <laughs> so that was one of the jokes. And uh, Casey Sen did a remarkable uh, piece of work for the community, I must say. So, uh, so in that time, when you were in the late teens and early twenties, I take it there would have been a lot more white faces around the streets here than I see today. No, that is true. That is true. Um, Yes, but I never really put much uh, thought to that, you know, now that you make me recall. But there were a lot of Europeans, there were a lot of British also, and uh, it was all right. Like, nobody stood out, like, you know, the way you are trying to focus is like, were there many white faces? No, 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 not to that extent. And uh, at that time, one never thought of such a thing. You know? What's your recollection, if any, of uh, independence when it came to India? Well, um, 1947 on, onwards, well, um, in the beginning, in the beginning, it was very difficult, I know, for uh, the people I was friendly with. You know? uh, it, it was a very difficult time because everyone was in great... Uh, well, fear, 
and, and uncertainty. Fear, uncertainty. And uh, of course, they had very good reasons to be afraid and uh, to be uncertain because the British had left. And most of the Anglo Indians, 99% of them, were thinking that, oh my God, what's going to happen? Uh, will the Indians accept us? You see, because we are half. Uh, British, will they accept us or will they slaughter us? Because then you know you had the Pakistan and India, the division and yeah. the, the massacre that took place mm -hmm. and, and that put more uh, right. fear into the people. I know people in those days were very, very afraid. But then, but then, uh, that was 47, 48, 49, 50. And, uh, by the time it came to the 50s, Everyone seems to seem to have come to the realization that uh, the Indians were very happy to have us. Right. Now, that was strange to most Indians because the cream of the society had made an exodus right. to England, Australia, wherever they could go, they went, but they didn't want to stay here. Right. So I should say the cream of the society right. had uh, gone away. Right. And what was left behind, uh, well, I won't say dire cream of the right. society, <laughs> but there were still a few uh, well-known people and uh, rich people, Anglo-Indians, right. who were here, but uh, they were a handful. They were just a handful. And then they came to realize that the Indians uh, were very happy to have us. Is that in part because the Anglo-Indian community achieved some formal recognition in the Indian constitution? Um, no, I don't really think it was that. That was there, no doubt, in the subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. It was there. But uh, this one-on-one, -on -one, as I'm saying, yes. um, yeah. meeting the uh, people at all levels of their society, you know, uh -huh. meeting them, uh, one came to realize that they were so happy that we were here because we represented what they had lost. Right. You know? mm. So in a way it was the reverse of the original policy by the East India Company to maintain through the offsprings of Anglo-Indian families uh, and enhance the Britishians. What happened after independence was that the Anglo-Indian community stayed in India and helped to support India. India, that's right. As well. hmm. uh, and that's what even uh, Mrs. Indira Gandhi had said. Uh -huh. It's a very famous thing about the Anglo-Indian uh, people. And that's even mentioned in one of my books. I've given it a special place. Uh, she phrased it so well and so nicely that because of the Anglo-Indian community, India has advanced right. at that period of time, you see? Yeah. And uh, there was some sort of uh, cohesion. Yeah. Was there some regret, maybe even some bitterness, from the Anglo-Indian community against the British who essentially denied the British nationality? That was, that was very, very true and correct. Although many don't want to uh, emphasize on that point, but uh, they did feel betrayed. There are many Anglo-Indians who uh, are well-known throughout the world, really. But one of the uh, Anglo-Indians that uh, you've been writing about in the past is Stephen Smith. Now, Stephen Smith uh, was uh, involved in uh, 
the Indian Air Mail Society and testing of rockets, rocket mail. Um, he, Stephen Smith, grew up uh, around here somewhere. Yes, Stephen Smith grew up on Elliot Road. Uh, now I'm at number three and he was around the corner, you know, uh, at that time. And uh, I did meet the man, I did meet him on two occasions. Uh, no, was that? No, 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 that was his son that I met, Stephen Smith's son, yeah. And uh, I spoke to him, he lived on the corner at uh, 25, I think, 25, yeah, Elliot Road. And then I did write uh, about Stephen Smith, uh, his works that he did, but they were all snippets, just short, basic uh, things about the man. So Stephen Smith, he died in 1951. Um, the recollection you have of meeting his son, Hector, um, where did you meet him or what kind of uh, I met him in the 70s, right. yeah, late 70s. Right. And uh, in what connection? Well, the first meeting I had with him was when someone came and told me, an Anglo-Indian family came and told me, I say, you know, he's selling a book rack, a book rack and a dining table and uh, odds and ends. And if you would be interested, I said, I'm very much interested in a book rack to start with. And uh, so I went across there and uh, I bought it from him. Oh, I see. So it's a book rack from... Probably a book rack that uh, Stephen Smith would have used himself. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So uh, I bought that. I still have it with me, uh -huh. uh, the book rack. Uh -huh. And uh, then I spoke to him. He invited me for lunch and my wife and things like that. And uh, yeah, that's what I can say about. Did he at that time talk about his father's work in uh, rockets and ML? Uh, he did. He did tell me, and then he told me that uh, he had read something I had written. And uh, he said it was nice, but he said there's much more that you could have said about the man. Right. <laughs> so I and as far as you recall, what did um, Hector Smith and his wife, uh, his son stayed here, but um, I understand Hector and his wife at some stage went to England. They immigrated to England and the cold uh, affected him and he died. Soon after that, yes, right. and that was mainly due to the uh, cold. Right. He couldn't bear the cold over there. Yeah. Do you remember approximately when that was? Uh, that was in the 80s, I think. Right. 80s.